Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come dies. back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How to do the dead come back, today, Mother? What's the secret? Chapter 4 One afternoon, a month later, Dorian Gray was reclining in a luxurious armchair in the little library of Lord Henry's house in Mayfair. It was, in its way, a very charming room, with its high-panelled wainscoting of olive-stained oak, its cream-coloured frieze and ceiling of raised plasterwork, and its brick-dust felt carpet strewn with silk, long-fringed Persian rugs. On a tiny satin-wood table stood a statuette by Clodion, and beside it lay a copy of Les Sans Nouvelles, bound for Margaret of Valois by Clovis Eve, and powdered with the gilt daisies that queen had selected for her device. Some large blue china jars and parrot tulips were ranged on the mantel shelf, and through the small leaded panes of the window streamed the apricot-coloured light of a summer day in London. Lord Henry had not yet come in. He was always late on principle, his principle being that punctuality is the thief of time, so the lad was looking rather sulky, as with listless fingers he turned over the pages of an elaborately illustrated edition of Manon Lescaut that he had found in one of the bookcases. The formal, monotonous ticking of the Louis XIV clock annoyed him. Once or twice he thought of going away. At last he heard a step outside and the door opened. How late you are, Harry, he murmured. I'm afraid it is not Harry, Mr. Gray, answered the shrill voice. He glanced quickly round and rose to his feet. I, I beg your pardon, I thought. You thought it was my husband. It is only his wife. You must let me introduce myself. I know you quite well by your photographs. I think my husband has got seventeen of them. Not seventeen, Lady Henry. Well, eighteen, then. And I saw you with him the other night at the opera. She laughed nervously as she spoke and watched him with her vague forget-me-not eyes. She was a curious woman, whose dresses always looked as if they had been designed in a rage and put on in a tempest. She was usually in love with somebody, and as her passion was never returned, she had kept all her illusions. She tried to look picturesque, but only succeeded in being untidy. Her name was Victoria, and she had a perfect mania for going to church. That was at Lohengrin, Lady Henry, I think. Yes, it was a dear Lohengrin. I like Wagner's music better than anybody's. It's so loud that one can talk the whole time without other people hearing what one says. That is a great advantage, don't you think so, Mr. Gray? The same nervous staccato laugh broke from her thin lips, and her fingers began to play with a long tortoise-shell paper knife. Dorian smiled and shook his head. I'm afraid I don't think so, Lady Henry. I never talk during music, at least during good music. If one hears bad music, it's one's duty to drown it in conversation. Ah, that is one of Harry's views, isn't it, Mr. Gray? I always hear Harry's views from his friends. It's the only way I get to know of them. But you mustn't think I don't like good music. I adore it, but I'm afraid of it. It makes me too romantic. I have simply worshipped pianists, two at a time sometimes. Harry tells me. I don't know what it is about them. Perhaps it is that they are foreigners. They all are, ain't they? 
Even those that are born in England become foreigners after a time, don't they? It is so clever of them, and such a compliment to art. Makes it quite cosmopolitan, doesn't it? You have never been to any of my parties, have you, Mr. Gray? You must come. I can't afford orchids, but I share no expense in foreigners. They make one's rooms look so picturesque. But here is Harry. Harry! I came in to look for you, to ask you something. I forget what it was. And I found Mr. Gray here. We have had such a pleasant chat about music. We have quite the same ideas. No, I think our ideas are quite different. But he has been most pleasant. I'm so glad I've seen him. I'm charmed, my love, quite charmed, said Lord Henry, elevating his dark, crescent-shaped eyebrows and looking at them both with an amused smile. So sorry I'm late, Dorian. I went to look after a piece of old brocade in Wardour Street and had to bargain for hours for it. Nowadays, people know the price of everything and the value of nothing. I'm afraid I must be going, exclaimed Lady Henry, breaking an awkward silence with her silly, sudden laugh. I have promised to drive with the Duchess. Goodbye, Mr. Gray. Goodbye, Harry. You are dining out, I suppose? So am I. Perhaps I shall see you at Lady Thornbury's. I dare say, my dear, said Lord Henry, shutting the door behind her, as looking like a bird of paradise that had been out all night in the rain, she flitted out of the room, leaving a faint odour of frangipani. Then he lit a cigarette and flung himself down on the sofa. Never marry a woman with straw-coloured hair, Dorian, he said after a few puffs. Why, Harry? Because they are so sentimental. But I like sentimental people. Never marry at all, Dorian. Men marry because they are tired. Women because they are curious. Both are disappointed. I don't think I am likely to marry, Harry. I am too much in love. That is one of your aphorisms. I am putting it into practice as I do everything that you say. Who are you in love with? asked Lord Henry after a pause. With an actress, said Dorian Gray, blushing. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. That is a rather commonplace debut. You wouldn't say so if you saw her, Harry. Who is she? Her, her name is Sybil Vane. Never heard of her. No one has. People will some day, however. She is a genius. My dear boy, no woman is a genius. Women are a decorative sex. They never have anything to say, but they say it charmingly. Women represent the triumph of matter over mind, just as men represent the triumph of mind over morals. Harry, how can you? My dear Dorian, it's quite true. I'm analysing women at present, so I ought to know. The subject is not so abstruse as I thought it was. I find that ultimately there are only two kinds of women, the plain and the coloured. The plain women are very useful. If you want to gain a reputation for respectability, you have merely to take them down to supper. The other women are very charming. They commit one mistake, however. They paint in order to try and look young. Our grandmothers painted in order to try and talk brilliantly. Rouge and Esprit used to go together. That's all over now. As long as a woman can look ten years younger than her own daughter, she's perfectly satisfied. As for conversation... There are only five women in London worth talking to, and two of those can't be admitted into decent society. However, tell me about your genius. How long have you known her? 
Oh, Harry, your views terrify me. Never mind that. How long have you known her? About three weeks. And where did you come across her? I'll tell you, Harry, but you mustn't be unsympathetic about it. After all, it would never have happened if I hadn't met you. You filled me with a wild desire to know everything about life. For days after I met you, something seemed to throb in my veins. As I lounged in the park or strolled down Piccadilly, I used to look at everyone who passed me and wonder with a mad curiosity what sort of lives they led. Some of them fascinated me. Others filled me with terror. There was an exquisite poison in the air. I had a passion for sensations. Well, one evening, about seven o'clock, I determined to go out in search of some adventure. I felt that this grey, monstrous London of ours, with its myriads of people, its sordid sinners, and its splendid sins, as you once phrased it, must have something in store for me. I fancied a thousand things. The mere danger gave me a sense of delight. I remembered what you had said to me on that wonderful evening when we first dined together about the search for beauty being the real secret of life. I don't know what I expected, but I went out and wandered eastward, soon losing my way in a labyrinth of grimy streets and black grassless squares. About half past eight, I passed by an absurd little theatre with great flaring gas jets and gaudy playbills. A hideous Jew in the most amazing waistcoat I ever beheld in my life was standing at the entrance, smoking a vile cigar. He had greasy ringlets and an enormous diamond blazed in the centre of a soiled shirt. Have a box, my lord, he said when he saw me, and he took off his hat with an air of gorgeous civility. There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster. You laugh at me, I know, but I really went in and paid a whole guinea for the stage box. To the present day, I can't make out why I did so. And yet, if I hadn't, my dear Harry, if I hadn't, I should have missed the greatest romance of my life. I see you're laughing. It's horrid of you. I'm not laughing, Dorian. At least I'm not laughing at you. But you shouldn't say the greatest romance of your life. You should say the first romance of your life. You will always be loved and you will always be in love with love. A grand passion is the privilege of people who have nothing to do. That is one of the use of the idle classes of a country. Don't be afraid. There are exquisite things in store for you. This is merely the beginning. Do you think my nature is so shallow? cried Dorian Gray angrily. No, I think your nature is so deep. How do you mean? My dear boy, the people who love only once in their lives are really the shallow people. What they call their loyalty and their fidelity, I call either the lethargy of custom or their lack of imagination. Faithfulness is to the emotional life what consistency is to the life of the intellect, simply a confession of failure. Faithfulness, I must analyse it some day. The passion for property is in it. There are many things that we would throw away if we were not afraid that others might pick them up. But I don't want to interrupt you. Go on with your story. Well, I found myself seated in a horrid little private box with a vulgar drop scene staring me in the face. I looked out from behind the curtain and surveyed the house. It was a tawdry affair, all cupids and cornucopias like a third-rate wedding cake. 
The gallery and pit were fairly full, but the two rows of dingy stores were quite empty, and there was hardly a person in what I suppose they called the dress circle. Women went about with oranges and ginger beer, and there was a terrible consumption of nuts going on. It must have been just like the palmy days of the British drama, just like, I should fancy, and very depressing. I began to wonder what on earth I should do when I caught sight of the playbill. What do you think the play was, Harry? I should think um, the idiot boy or dumb but innocent. Our fathers used to like that sort of piece, I believe. The longer I live, Dorian, the more keenly I feel that whatever was good enough for our fathers is not good enough for us. In art as in politics, les grands-pères ont toujours tort. This play was good enough for us, Harry. It was Romeo and Juliet. I must admit that I was rather annoyed at the idea of seeing Shakespeare done in such a wretched hole of a place. Still, I felt interested in a sort of a way. At any rate, I determined to wait for the first act. There was a dreadful orchestra presided over by a young Hebrew who sat at a cracked piano that nearly drove me away. But at last, the drop scene was drawn up and the play began. Romeo was a stout elderly gentleman with corked eyebrows, a husky tragedy voice, and a figure like a beer barrel. Mercutio was almost as bad. He was played by the low comedian who had introduced gags of his own and was on most friendly terms with the pit. They were both as grotesque as the scenery, and that looked as if it had come out of a country booth. But Julie adds, Harry, imagine a girl hardly seventeen years of age with a little flower-like face, a small Greek head with plaited coils of dark brown hair, eyes that were violet wells of passion, lips that were like the petals of a rose. She was the loveliest thing. I had ever seen in my life. You said to me once that pathos left you unmoved, but that beauty, mere beauty, could fill your eyes with tears. I tell you, Harry, I could hardly see this girl for the mists of tears that came across me, and her voice. I never heard such a voice. It was very low at first, with deep mellow tones that seemed to fall singly upon one's ear. Then it became a little louder and sounded like a flute or a distant boy. In the garden scene, it had all the tremulous ecstasy that one hears just before dawn when nightingales are singing. There were moments later on when it had the wild passion of violins. You know how a voice can stir one. Your voice and the voice of Sybil Vane are the two things that I shall never forget. When I close my eyes, I hear them and each of them says something different. I don't know which to follow. Why should I not love her, Harry? I do love her. She is everything to me in life. Night after night I go to see her play. One evening she is Rosalind, and the next evening she is Imogen. I have seen her die in the gloom of an Italian tomb, sucking the poison from her lover's lips. I have watched her wandering through the forest of Arden, disguised as a pretty boy in a hose and doublet and dainty cap. She has been mad, and has come into the presence of a guilty king and given him rue to wear and bitter herbs to taste of. She has been innocent, and the black hands of jealousy have crushed her reed-like throat. I have seen her in every age and in every costume. Ordinary women never appeal to one's imagination. They are limited to their century. 
No glamour ever transfigures them. One knows their minds as easily as one knows their bonnets. One can always find them. There is no mystery in any of them. They ride in the park in the morning and chatter at tea parties in the afternoon. They have their stereotyped smile and their fashionable manner. They are quite obvious. But an actress, how different an actress is. Harry, why didn't you tell me that the only thing worth loving is an actress? Because I have loved so many of them, Dorian. Oh yes, horrid people with dyed hair and painted faces. Don't run down dyed hair and painted faces. There is an extraordinary charm in them sometimes, said Lord Henry. I wish now I hadn't told you about Sybil Vane. You could not have helped telling me, Dorian. All through your life you will tell me everything you do. Yes, Harry, I believe that is true. I cannot help telling you things. You have a curious influence over me. If I ever did a crime, I would come and confess it to you. You would understand me. People like you, the willful sunbeams of life, don't commit crimes, Dorian. But I am much obliged for the compliment all the same. And now, tell me, reach me the matches like a good boy. Uh, thanks. What are your actual relations with Sybil Vane? Dorian Gray leapt to his feet with flushed cheeks and burning eyes. Harry, Sybil Vane is sacred. It is only the sacred things that are worth touching, Dorian, said Lord Henry, with a strange touch of pathos in his voice. But why should you be annoyed? I suppose she will belong to you some day. When one is in love, one always begins by deceiving oneself, and one always ends by deceiving others. That is what the world calls romance. You know her, at any rate, I suppose. Of course I know her. On the first night I was at the theatre, the horrid old Jew came round to the box after the performance was over and offered to take me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. I was furious with him and told him that Juliet had been dead for hundreds of years and that her body was lying in a marble tomb in Verona. I think, from his blank look of amazement, that he was under the impression that I had taken too much champagne or something. I'm not surprised. Then he asked me if I wrote for any of the newspapers. I told him I never even read them. He seemed terribly disappointed at that, and confided to me that all the dramatic critics were in a conspiracy against him, and that they were every one of them to be bought. I shouldn't wonder if he was quite right there. But on the other hand, judging from their appearance, most of them cannot be at all expensive. Well, he seemed to think they were beyond his means, laughed Dorian. By this time, however, the lights were being put out in the theatre, and I had to go. He wanted me to try some cigars that he strongly recommended. I declined. The next night, of course, I arrived at the place again. When he saw me, he made me a low bow and assured me that I was a munificent patron of art. He was a most offensive brute, though he had an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He told me once, with an air of pride, that his five bankruptcies were entirely due to the bard, as he insisted on calling him. He seemed to think it a distinction. It was a distinction, my dear Dorian, a great distinction. Most people become bankrupt through having invested too heavily in the prose of life. To have ruined oneself over poetry is an honour. But when did you first speak to Miss Sybil Vane? The third night. She had been playing Rosalind. I couldn't help going round. I had thrown her some flowers, and, and she had looked at me, or 
At least I fancied she had. The old Jew was persistent. He seemed determined to take me behind, so I consented. It was curious, my not wanting to know her, wasn't it? No, I don't think so. My dear Harry, why? I'll tell you some other time. Now I want to know about the girl. Sybil. Oh, she was so shy and gentle. There's something of a child about her. Her eyes opened wide in exquisite wonder when I told her what I thought of her performance, and she seemed quite unconscious of her power. I think we were both rather nervous. The old Jew stood grinning at the doorway of the dusty green room, making elaborate speeches about us both, while we stood looking at each other like children. He would insist on calling me my lord, so I had to assure Sybil that I was not anything of the kind. She said quite simply to me, You look more like a prince. I must call you Prince Charming. Upon my word, Dorian, Miss Sybil knows how to pay compliments. You don't understand her, Harry. She regarded me merely as a person in a play. She knows nothing of life. She lives with her mother, a faded, tired woman who played Lily Capulet in a sort of magenta dressing wrapper on the first night, and looks as if she had seen better days. I know that look. It depresses me, murmured Lord Henry, examining his rings. The Jew wanted to tell me her history, but I said it didn't interest me. You are quite right. There is always something infinitely mean about other people's tragedies. Sybil is the only thing I care about. What is it to me where she came from? From her little head to her little feet, she is absolutely and entirely divine. Every night of my life I go to see her act, and, and every night she is more marvellous. That is the reason, I suppose, that you never dine with me now. I thought you must have some curious romance on hand. You have, but it's not quite what I expected. My dear Harry, we either lunch or sup together every day, and I have been to the opera with you several times, said Dorian, opening his blue eyes in wonder. You always come dreadfully late. Well, I can't help going to see Sybil play, he cried, even if it is only for a single act. I get hungry for her presence. And when I think of the wonderful soul that is hidden away in that little ivory body, I'm filled with awe. You can dine with me tonight, Dorian, can't you? He shook his head. Tonight? She is Imogen, he answered, and tomorrow night she will be Juliet. When is she Sybil Vane? Never. I congratulate you. How horrid you are. She is all the great heroines of the world in one. She is more than an individual. You laugh, but I tell you, she has genius. I love her. And I must make her love me. You, who know all the secrets of life, tell me how to charm Sybil Vane to love me. I want to make Romeo jealous. I want the dead lovers of the world to hear our laughter and grow sad. I want a breath of our passion to stir their dust into consciousness, to wake their ashes into pain. My God, Harry, how I worship her. He was walking up and down the room as he spoke. Hectic spots of red burned on his cheeks. He was terribly excited. Lord Henry watched him with a subtle sense of pleasure. How different he was now from the shy, frightened boy he had met in Basil Hallward's studio. His nature had developed like a flower. He had borne blossoms of scarlet flame. Out of its secret hiding place had crept his soul and desire had come to meet it on the way. And what do you propose to do? said Lord Henry at last. I, I want you and Basil to come with me some night and see her act. 
I haven't the slightest fear of the result. You are certain to acknowledge her genius. Then we must get her out of the Jew's hands. She's bound to him for three years, at least for two years and eight months from the present time. I shall have to pay him something, of course. When all that is settled, I shall take a West End theatre and bring her out properly. She will make the world as mad as she has made me. That would be impossible, my dear boy. Yes, she will. She is not merely art, consummate art, instinct in her, but she has personality also, and you have often told me that it is personalities, not principles, that move the age. Well, what night shall we go? Uh, let me see. Today is Tuesday. Let's fix tomorrow. Sh she plays Juliet tomorrow. All right. The Bristol at eight o'clock, and I will get Basil. Not eight, Harry, please. Half past six. We must be there before the curtain rises. You must see her in the first act, where she meets Romeo. Half past six. What an hour. It'll be like having a meat tea or reading an English novel. It must be seven. No gentleman dines before seven. Shall you see Basil between this and then, or shall I write to him? Dear Basil, I haven't laid eyes on him for a week. It's rather horrid of me as he has sent me my portrait in a most wonderful frame, specially designed by himself, and, and though I'm a little jealous of the picture for being a whole month younger than I am, I must admit that I delight in it. Perhaps you had better write to him. I don't want to see him alone. He says things that annoy me. He gives me good advice. Lord Henry smiled. People are very fond of giving away what they need most themselves. It's what I call the depth of generosity. Oh, Basil is the best of fellows, but he seems to me to be just a bit of a Philistine. Since I've known you, Harry, I have discovered that. Basil, my dear boy, puts everything that is charming in him into his work. The consequence is that he has nothing left for life but his prejudices, his principles, and his common sense. The only artists I have ever known who are personally delightful are bad artists, Good artists exist simply in what they make, and consequently are perfectly uninteresting in what they are. A great poet, a really great poet, is the most unpoetical of all creatures, but inferior poets are absolutely fascinating. The worse their rhymes are, the more picturesque they look. The mere fact of having published a book of second-rate sonnets makes a man quite irresistible. He lives the poetry that he cannot write. The others write the poetry that they dare not realise. I wonder, is that really so, Harry, said Dorian Gray, putting some perfume on his handkerchief out of a large gold-topped bottle that stood on the table. It must be, if you say it. And now, I'm off. Imogen is waiting for me. Don't forget about tomorrow. Goodbye. As he left the room, Lord Henry's heavy eyelids drooped, and he began to think. Certainly few people had ever interested him so much as Dorian Gray, and yet the lad's mad adoration of someone else caused him not the slightest pang of annoyance or jealousy. He was pleased by it. It made him a more interesting study. He had been always enthralled by the methods of natural science, but the ordinary subject matter of that science had seemed to him trivial and of no import. And so he had begun by vivisecting himself, as he had ended by vivisecting others. Human life, that appeared to him the one thing worth investigating. Compared to it, 
there was nothing else of any value. It was true that as one watched life in its curious crucible of pain and pleasure, one could not wear over one's face a mask of glass, nor keep the sulphurous fumes from troubling the brain and making the imagination turbid with monstrous fancies and misshapen dreams. There were poisons so subtle that to know their properties one had to sicken of them. There were maladies so strange that one had to pass through them if one sought to understand their nature. And yet, what a great reward one received! How wonderful the whole world became to one! To note the curious hard logic of passion and the emotional coloured life of the intellect, to observe where they met and where they separated, at what point they were in unison and at what point they were at discord. There was a delight in that. What matter what the cost was, one could never pay too high a price for any sensation. He was conscious, and the thought brought a gleam of pleasure into his brown agate eyes that it was through certain words of his, musical words, said with musical utterance, that Dorian Gray's soul had turned to this white girl and bowed in worship before her. To a large extent, the lad was his own creation. He had made him premature. That was something. Ordinary people waited till life disclosed them its secrets, but to the few, to the elect, the mysteries of life were revealed before the veil was drawn away. Sometimes this was the effect of art, and chiefly of the art of literature, which dealt immediately with the passions and the intellect, but now and then a complex personality took the place and assumed the office of art was indeed in its way a real work of art, life having its elaborate masterpieces, just as poetry has, or sculpture, or painting. Yes, the lad was premature. He was gathering his harvest while it was yet spring. The pulse and passion of youth were in him, but he was becoming self-conscious. It was a delight to watch him, with his beautiful face and his beautiful soul. He was a thing to wonder at. It was no matter how it all ended, or was destined to end. He was like one of those gracious figures in a pageant or a play, whose joys seem to be remote from one, but whose sorrows stir one's sense of beauty, and whose wounds are like red roses. Soul and body, body and soul, how mysterious they were. There was animalism in the soul, and the body had its moments of spirituality. The senses could refine and the intellect could degrade. Who could say where the fleshly impulse ceased or the psychical impulse began? How shallow were the arbitrary definitions of ordinary psychologists, and yet how difficult to decide between the claims of the various schools? Was the soul a shadow seated in the house of sin, or was the body really in the soul, as Giordano Bruno thought? The separation of spirit from matter was a mystery, and the union of spirit with matter was a mystery also. He began to wonder whether we could ever make psychology so absolute a science that each little spring of life would be revealed to us. As it was, we always misunderstood ourselves, and rarely understood others. Experience was of no ethical value, it was merely the name men gave to their mistakes. Moralists had as a rule regarded it as a mode of warning, had claimed for it a certain ethical efficacy in the formation of character, 
had praised it as something that taught us what to follow and showed us what to avoid. But there was no motive power in experience. It was as little of an active cause as conscience itself. All that it really demonstrated was that our future would be the same as our past, and that the sins we had done once, and with loathing, we would do many times, and with joy. It was clear to him that the experimental method was the only method by which one could arrive at any scientific analysis of the passions, and certainly Dorian Gray was a subject made to his hand and seemed to promise rich and fruitful results. His sudden mad love for Sybil Vane was a psychological phenomenon of no small interest. There was no doubt that curiosity had much to do with it, curiosity and the desire for new experiences. Yet, it was not a simple, but rather a very complex passion. What there was in it, the purely sensuous instinct of boyhood, had been transformed by the workings of the imagination, changed into something that seemed to the lad himself to be remote from sense, and was for that reason all the more dangerous. It was the passions about whose origin we deceived ourselves that tyrannized most strongly over us. Our weakest motives were those of whose nature we were conscious. It often happened that when we thought we were experimenting on others, we were really experimenting on ourselves. While Lord Henry sat dreaming on these things, a knock came to the door, and his valet entered and reminded him that it was time to dress for dinner. He got up and looked out into the street. The sunset had smitten into scarlet gold the upper windows of the houses opposite. The panes glowed like plates of heated metal. The sky above was like a faded rose. He thought of his friend's young, fiery-coloured life and wondered how it was all going to end. When he arrived home, about half-past twelve o'clock, he saw a telegram lying on the hall table. He opened it and found it was from Dorian Gray. It was to tell him that he was engaged to be married to Sybil Vane. Chapter 5 Mother, mother, I'm so happy, whispered the girl, burying her face in the lap of the faded, tired-looking woman, who, with back turned to the shrill, intrusive light, was sitting in the one armchair that their dingy sitting-room contained. I'm so happy, she repeated, and you must be happy too. Mrs. Vane winced and put her thin, bismuth-whitened hands onto her daughter's head. Happy, she echoed. I'm only happy, Sybil, when I see you act. You must not think of anything but your acting. Mr. Isaacs has been very good to us, and we owe him money. The girl looked up and pouted. Money, mother, she cried. What does money matter? Love is more than money. Mr. Isaacs has advanced us fifty pounds to pay off our debts and to get a proper outfit for James. You mustn't forget that, Sybil. Fifty pounds is a very large sum. Mr. Isaacs has been most considerate. He is not a gentleman, mother, and I hate the way he talks to me, said the girl, rising to her feet and going over to the window. I don't know how we could manage without him, answered the elder woman querulously. Sybil Vane tossed her head and laughed. We don't want him any more, mother. Prince Charming rules life for us now. Then she paused. A rose shook in her blood and shadowed her cheeks. 
Quick breath parted the petals of her lips. They trembled. Some southern wind of passion swept over her and stirred the dainty folds of her dress. I love him, she said simply. Foolish child, foolish child, was the parrot phrase flung in answer. The waving of crooked, false-jeweled fingers gave a grotesqueness to the words. The girl laughed again. The joy of a caged bird was in her voice. Her eyes caught the melody and echoed it in radiance, then closed for a moment, as though to hide their secret. When they opened, the mist of a dream had passed across them. Thin-lipped wisdom spoke at her from the worn chair, hinted at prudence, quoted from that book of cowardice whose author apes the name of common sense. She didn't listen. She was free in her prison of passion. Her prince, Prince Charming, was with her. She had called on memory to remake him. She had sent her soul to search for him, and it had brought him back. His kiss burned again on her mouth. Her eyelids were warm with his breath. Then wisdom altered its method and spoke of espial and discovery. This young man might be rich. If so, marriage should be thought of. Against the shell of her ear broke the waves of worldly cunning. The arrows of craft shot by her. She saw the thin lips moving and smiled. Suddenly she felt the need to speak. The wordy silence troubled her. Mother, mother, she cried, why does he love me so much? I know why I love him. I love him because he is like what love himself should be. But what does he see in me? I'm not worthy of him. And yet, why, I cannot tell, though I feel so much beneath him. I don't feel humble. I feel proud, terribly proud. Mother, did you love my father as I love Prince Charming? The elder woman grew pale beneath the coarse powder that daubed her cheeks, and her dry lips twitched with a spasm of pain. Sybil rushed to her, flung her arms around her neck, and kissed her. Forgive me, mother, I, I know it pains you to talk about our father, but it only pains you because you loved him so much. Don't look so sad. I am as happy today as you were twenty years ago. Ah, let me be happy forever. Mrs. Vane glanced at her and with one of those false theatrical gestures that so often become a mode of second nature to a stage player, clasped her in her arms. At this moment the door opened, and a young lad with rough brown hair came into the room. He was thick-set of figure, and his hands and feet were large and somewhat clumsy in movement. He was not so finely bred as his sister. One would hardly have guessed the close relationship that existed between them. Mrs. Vane fixed her eyes on him and intensified her smile. She mentally elevated her son to the dignity of an audience. She felt sure that the tableau was interesting. You might keep some of your kisses for me, Sybil, I think, said the lad with a good-natured grumble. Ah, but you don't like being kissed, Jim, she cried. You are a dreadful old bear. And she ran across the room and hugged him. James Vane looked into his sister's face with tenderness. I want you to come out with me for a walk, Sybil. I don't suppose I shall ever see this horrid London again. I'm sure I don't want to. My son, don't say such dreadful things, murmured Mrs. Vane, taking up a tawdry theatrical dress with a sigh and beginning to patch it. She felt a little disappointed that he had not joined the group. It would have increased the theatrical picturesqueness of the situation. Why not, mother? I mean it. 
You pain me, son. I trust you will return from Australia in a position of affluence. I believe there is no society of any kind in the colonies, nothing that I would call society. So when you have made your fortune, you must come back and assert yourself in London. Society, muttered the lad. I don't want to know anything about that. I should like to make some money and take you and Sybil off the stage. I hate it. Oh, Jim, said Sybil, laughing. How unkind of you. But are you really going for a walk with me? That would be nice. I was afraid you were going to say goodbye to some of your friends, to Tom Hardy, who gave you that hideous pipe, or Ned Langton, who makes fun of you for smoking it. It's very sweet of you to let me have your last afternoon. Where shall we go? Let's go to the park. I'm too shabby, he answered, frowning. Only swell people go to the park. Nonsense, Jim, she whispered, stroking the sleeve of his coat. He hesitated for a moment. Very well, he said at last, but don't be too long dressing. She danced out of the door. One could hear her singing as she ran upstairs, her little feet patted overhead. He walked up and down the room two or three times. Then he turned to the still figure in the chair. Mother, are my things ready? he asked. Quite ready, James, she answered, keeping her eyes on her work. For some months past she had felt ill at ease when she was alone with this rough, stern son of hers. Her shallow, secret nature was troubled when their eyes met. She used to wonder if he suspected anything. The silence, for he made no other observation, became intolerable to her. She began to complain. Women defend themselves by attacking, just as they attack by sudden and strange surrenders. I hope you'll be contented, James, with your seafaring life, she said. You must remember that it is your own choice. You might have entered a solicitor's office. Solicitors are a very respectable class, and in the country often dine with the best families. I hate offices, and I hate clerks, he replied. But you're quite right. I have chosen my own life. All I say is watch over Sybil. Don't let her come to any harm, mother. You must watch over her. James, you really talk very strangely. Of course I'll watch over Sybil. I hear a gentleman comes every night to the theatre and goes behind to talk to her. Is that right? What about that? You're speaking about things you don't understand, James. In the profession we are accustomed to receive a great deal of most gratifying attention. I myself used to receive many bouquets at one time. That was when acting was really understood. As for Sybil... I don't know at present whether her attachment is serious or not, but there's no doubt that the young man in question is a perfect gentleman. He is always most polite to me. Besides, he has the appearance of being rich, and the flowers he sends are lovely. You don't know his name, though, said the lad harshly. No, answered his mother with a placid expression in her face. He has not yet revealed his real name. I think it's quite romantic of him. He's probably a member of the aristocracy. James Vane bit his lip. Watch over, Sybil mother, he cried. Watch over her. My son, you distress me very much. Sybil is always under my special care. Of course, if this gentleman is wealthy, there is no reason why she shouldn't contract an alliance with him. I trust he is one of the aristocracy. He has all the appearance of it, I must say. It might be a most brilliant marriage for Sybil. They would make a charming couple. His good looks are quite remarkable. Everybody notices them. The lad muttered something to himself, 
and drummed on the window pane with his coarse fingers. He had just turned round to say something when the door opened and Sybil ran in. How serious you both are, she cried. What is the matter? Nothing, he answered. I suppose one must be serious sometimes. Goodbye, mother. I'll have my dinner at five o'clock. Everything's packed, except my shirt, so you need not trouble. Goodbye, my son, she answered with a bow of strained stateliness. She was extremely annoyed at the tone he had adopted with her, and there was something in his look that made her feel afraid. Kiss me, mother, said the girl. Her flower-like lips touched the withered cheek and warmed its frost. My child, my child, cried Mrs. Vane, looking up to the ceiling in search of an imaginary gallery. Come, Sybil, said her brother impatiently. He hated his mother's affectations. They went out into the flickering, wind-blown sunlight and strolled down the dreary Euston Road. The passers-by glanced in wonder at the sullen, heavy youth who, in coarse, ill-fitting clothes, was in the company of such a graceful, refined-looking girl. He was like a common gardener walking with a rose. Jim frowned from time to time when he caught the inquisitive glance of some stranger. He had that dislike of being stared at which comes on geniuses late in life and never leaves the commonplace. Sybil, however, was quite unconscious of the effect she was producing. Her love was trembling in laughter on her lips. She was thinking of Prince Charming, and that she might think of him all the more. She didn't talk of him, but prattled on about the ship in which Jim was going to sail, about the gold he was certain to find, about the wonderful heiress whose life he was to save from the wicked red-shirted bushrangers, for he was not to remain a sailor or a supercargo or whatever he was going to be. Oh no, a sailor's existence was dreadful. Fancy being cooped up in a horrid ship with the hoarse humpbacked waves trying to get in, and the black wind blowing the masts down and tearing the sails into long screaming ribbons. He was to leave the vessel at Melbourne, bid a polite goodbye to the captain, and go off at once to the gold fields. Before a week was over he was to come across a large nugget of pure gold, the largest nugget that had ever been discovered and bring it down to the coast in a wagon guarded by six mounted policemen. The bushrangers were to attack them three times and be defeated with immense slaughter. Or no, he was not to go to the goldfields at all. They, they were horrid places where men got intoxicated and shot each other in barrooms and used bad language. He was to be a nice sheep farmer, and one evening, as he was riding home, he was to see the beautiful heiress being carried off by a robber on a black horse, and give chase, and rescue her. Of course, she would fall in love with him, and he with her, and they would get married, and come home, and live in an immense house in London. Yes, there were delightful things in store for him, but he must be very good, and not lose his temper or spend his money foolishly. She was only a year older than he was, but she knew so much more of life. He must be sure also to write her by every mail, and say his prayers each night before he went to sleep. God was very good and would watch over him. She would pray for him too, and in a few years he would come back quite rich and happy. The lad listened sulkily to her and made no answer. He was heartsick at living home. Yet it was not this alone that made him gloomy and morose. Inexperienced though he was, he still had a strong sense of the danger of Sybil's position 
This young dandy who was making love to her could mean her no good. He was a gentleman, and he hated him for that. Hated him through some curious race instinct for which he could not account, and which for that reason was all the more dominant within him. He was conscious also of the shallowness and vanity of his mother's nature, and in that saw infinite peril for Sybil and Sybil's happiness. Children begin by loving their parents. As they grow older, they judge them. Sometimes they forgive them. His mother. He had something on his mind to ask of her, something that he had brooded on for many months of silence, a chance phrase that he had heard at the theatre, a whispered sneer that had reached his ears one night as he waited at the stage door, had set loose a train of horrible thoughts. He remembered it as if it had been a lash of a hunting crop across his face. His brows knit together in a wedge-like furrow, and with a twitch of pain he bit his underlip. You're not listening to a word I'm saying, Jim, cried Sybil, and I am making the most delightful plans for your future. Do say something. What do you want me to say? Oh, that you'll be a good boy and not forget us, she answered, smiling at him. He shrugged his shoulders. You are more likely to forget me than I am to forget you, Sybil. She flushed. What do you mean, Jim? she asked. You have a new friend, I hear. Who is he? Why have you not told me about him? He means you're no good. Stop, Jim, she exclaimed. You must not say anything against him. I love him. Why, you don't even know his name, answered the lad. Who is he? I have a right to know. He's called Prince Charming. Don't you like the name? Oh, you silly boy, you should never forget it. If you only saw him, you would think him the most wonderful person in the world. Some day you will meet him, when you come back from Australia. You will like him so much. Everybody likes him, and I love him. I wish you could come to the theatre tonight. He's going to be there, and I'm to play Juliet. Oh, how I shall play it. Fancy Jim to be in love and play Juliet. To have him sitting there, to play for his delight. I'm afraid I may frighten the company, frighten or enthrall them. To be in love is to surpass oneself. Poor, dreadful Mr. Isaacs will be shouting, Genius! To his loafers at the bar. He has preached me as a dogma. Tonight he will announce me as a revelation. I feel it. And it is all his, his only, Prince Charming, my wonderful lover, my god of graces. But I am poor beside him. Poor? What does that matter? When poverty creeps in at the door, love flies in through the window. Our proverbs want rewriting. They were made in winter, and it is summer now. Springtime for me, I think. A very dance of blossoms in blue skies. He's a gentleman, said the lad sullenly. A prince, she cried musically. What more do you want? He wants to enslave you. I shudder at the thought of being free. I want you to beware of him. To see him is to worship him, to know him, is to trust him. Sybil, you're mad about him. She laughed and took his arm. You dear old Jim, you talk as if you were a hundred. Some day you'll be in love yourself. Then you'll know what it is. Don't look so sulky. Surely you should be glad to think that though you're going away, you leave me happier than I have ever been before. Life has been hard for us both, terribly hard and difficult. But it will be different now. You're going to a new world and I have found one. 
Here are two chairs. Let's sit down and see the smart people go by. They took their seats amidst a crowd of watchers. The tulip beds across the road flamed like throbbing rings of fire. A white dust, tremulous cloud of oris root it seemed, hung in the panting air. The brightly coloured parasols danced and dipped like monstrous butterflies. She made her brother talk of himself, his hopes, his prospects. He spoke slowly and with effort. They passed words to each other as players at a game past counters. Sybil felt oppressed. She couldn't communicate her joy. A faint smile curving that sullen mouth was all the echo she could win. After some time, she became silent. Suddenly she caught a glimpse of golden hair and laughing lips, and in an open carriage with two ladies, Dorian Gray drove past. She started to her feet. There he is, she cried. Who? said Jim Vane. Prince Charming, she answered, looking after the Victoria. He jumped up and seized her roughly by the arm. Show him to me. Which is he? Point him out. I must see him, he exclaimed. But at that moment, the Duke of Berwick's four in hand came between, and when it had left the space clear, the carriage had swept out of the park. He's gone, murmured Sybil sadly. I wish you'd seen him. I wish I had, for as sure as there is a God in heaven, if he ever does you any wrong, I shall kill him. She looked at him in horror. He repeated his words. They cut the air like a dagger. The people around began to gape. A lady standing close to her tittered. Come away, Jim, come away, she whispered. He followed her doggedly as she passed through the crowd. He felt glad at what he'd said. When they reached the Achilles statue, she turned round. There was pity in her eyes that became laughter on her lips. She shook her head at him. You're foolish, Jim, utterly foolish. A bad-tempered boy, that's all. How can you say such horrible things? You don't know what you're talking about. You're simply jealous and unkind. Ah, I wish you would fall in love. Love makes people good. And what you said was wicked. I'm sixteen, he answered, and I know what I'm about. Mother's no help to you. She doesn't understand how to look after you. I wish now that I wasn't going to Australia at all. I have a great mind to chuck the whole thing up. I would, if my articles hadn't been signed. Oh, don't be so serious, Jim. You're like one of the heroes of those silly melodramas Mother used to be so fond of acting in. I'm not going to quarrel with you. I've seen him, and oh, to see him is perfect happiness. We won't quarrel. I know you'd never harm anyone I love, would you? Not as long as you love him, I suppose, was the sullen answer. I shall love him forever, she cried, and he forever too. He'd better. She shrank from him. Then she laughed and put her hand on his arm. He was merely a boy. At the Marble Arch they hailed an omnibus, which left them close to their shabby home in the Euston Road. It was after five o'clock, and Sybil had to lie down for a couple of hours before acting. Jim insisted that she should do so. He said he would sooner part with her when their mother was not present. She would be sure to make a scene, and he detested scenes of every kind. In Sybil's own room they parted. There was jealousy in the lad's heart and a fierce, murderous hatred of the stranger who, as it seemed to him, had come between them. Yet, when her arms were flung around his neck and her fingers strayed through his hair, he softened and kissed her with real affection. There were tears in his eyes as he went downstairs. His mother was waiting for him below. She grumbled at his unpunctuality as he entered. He made no answer but sat down to his meagre meal. 
the flies buzzed round the table and crawled over the stained cloth. Through the rumble of omnibuses and the clatter of street cabs, he could hear the droning voice devouring each minute that was left to him. After some time, he thrust away his plate and put his head in his hands. He felt he had a right to know. It should have been told him before if it was as he suspected. Leaden with fear, his mother watched him. Words dropped mechanically from her lips. A tattered lace handkerchief twitched in her fingers. When the clock struck six, he got up and went to the door. Then he turned back and looked at her. Their eyes met. In hers he saw a wild appeal for mercy. It enraged him. Mother, I have something to ask you, he said. Her eyes wandered vaguely about the room. She made no answer. Tell me the truth. I have a right to know. Were you married to my father? She heaved a deep sigh. It was a sigh of relief. The terrible moment, the moment that night and day for weeks and months she had dreaded, had come at last. And yet, she felt no terror. Indeed, in some measure, it was a disappointment to her. The vulgar directness of the question called for a direct answer. The situation had not been gradually led up to. It was crude. It reminded her of a bad rehearsal. No, she answered, wondering at the harsh simplicity of life. My father was a scoundrel then, cried the lad, clenching his fists. She shook her head. I knew he wasn't free. We loved each other very much. If he had lived, he would have made provision for us. Don't speak against him, my son. He was your father, and a gentleman. Indeed, he was highly connected. An oath broke from his lips. I don't care for myself, he exclaimed, but don't let Sybil. It's a gentleman, isn't it, who is in love with her, or, or says he is. Highly connected, too, I suppose. For a moment, a hideous sense of humiliation came over the woman. Her head drooped. She wiped her eyes with shaking hands. Sybil has a mother, she murmured. I had none. The lad was touched. He went towards her, and stooping down, he kissed her. I'm sorry if I have pained you by asking about my father, he said, but I could not help it. I must go now. Goodbye. Don't forget that you will have only one child now to look after, and believe me, if this man wrongs my sister, I will find out who he is, track him down, and kill him like a dog. I swear it. The exaggerated folly of the threat, the passionate gesture that accompanied it, the mad melodramatic words made life seem more vivid to her. She was familiar with the atmosphere. She breathed more freely. And for the first time in many months, she really admired her son. She would have liked to have continued the scene in the same emotional vein, but he cut her short. Trunks had to be carried down and mufflers looked for. The lodging house drudge bustled in and out. There was the bargaining with the cabman. The moment was lost in vulgar details. It was with a renewed feeling of disappointment that she waved the tattered lace handkerchief from the window as her son drove away. She was conscious that a great opportunity had been wasted. She consoled herself by telling Sybil how desolate she felt her life would be now that she had only one child to look after. She remembered the phrase. It had pleased her. Of the threat, she said nothing. It was vividly and dramatically expressed. She felt that they would all laugh at it some day. Chapter 6
I suppose you have heard the news, Basil, said Lord Henry that evening, as Hallwood was shown into a little private room at the Bristol where dinner had been laid for three. No, Harry, answered the artist, giving his hat and coat to the bowing waiter. What is it? Nothing about politics, I hope, and they don't interest me. There is hardly a single person in the House of Commons worth painting, though many of them would be the better for a little whitewashing. Dorian Gray is engaged to be married, said Lord Henry, watching him as he spoke. Holwood started and then frowned. Dorian? Engaged to be married? he cried. Impossible. It is perfectly true. To whom? To some little actress or other. I can't believe it. Dorian is far too sensible. Dorian is far too wise not to do foolish things now and then, my dear Basil. Marriage is hardly a thing that one can do now and then, Harry. Except in America, rejoined Lord Henry languidly. But I didn't say he was married. I said he was engaged to be married. There is a great difference. I have a distinct remembrance of being married, but I have no recollection at all of being engaged. I'm inclined to think that I was never engaged. But think of Dorian's birth and position and wealth. It would be absurd for him to marry so much beneath him. If you want to make him marry this girl, tell him that, Basil. He's sure to do it then. Whenever a man does a thoroughly stupid thing, it's always from the noblest motives. I hope the girl's good, Harry. I don't want to see Dorian tied to some vile creature who might degrade his nature and ruin his intellect. Oh, she's better than good. She is beautiful, murmured Lord Henry, sipping a glass of vermouth and orange bitters. Dorian says she's beautiful, and he's not often wrong about things of that kind. Your portrait of him has quickened his appreciation of the personal appearance of other people. It has had that excellent effect, amongst others. We are to see her tonight, if that boy doesn't forget his appointment. Are you serious? Quite serious, Basil. I should be miserable if I thought I should ever be more serious than I am at the present moment. But do you approve of it, Harry? asked the painter, walking up and down the room and biting his lip. You can't approve of it, possibly. It's some silly infatuation. I never approve or disapprove of anything now. It is an absurd attitude to take towards life. We were not sent into the world to air our moral prejudices. I never take any notice of what common people say and I never interfere with what charming people do. If a personality fascinates me, whatever mode of expression that personality selects is absolutely delightful to me. Dorian Gray falls in love with a beautiful girl who acts Juliet and proposes to marry her. Why not? If he wedded Messalina, he would be nonetheless interesting. You know I am not a champion of marriage. The real drawback to marriage is that it makes one unselfish, and unselfish people are colourless. They lack individuality. Still, there are certain temperaments that marriage makes more complex. They retain their egotism and add it to many other egos. They are forced to have more than one life. They become more highly organised, and to be highly organised is, I should fancy, the object of man's existence. Besides, every experience is of value, and whatever one may say against marriage, it is certainly an experience. I hope that Dorian Gray will make this girl his wife, passionately adore her for six months, and then suddenly become fascinated by someone else. He would be a wonderful study. You don't mean a single word of all that, Harry, you know you don't. 
If Dorian Gray's life was spoiled, no one would be sorrier than yourself. You are much better than you pretend to be. Lord Henry laughed. The reason we all like to think so well of others is that we are all afraid for ourselves. The basis of optimism is sheer terror. We think that we are generous because we credit our neighbour with the possession of those virtues that are likely to be a benefit to us. We praise the banker that we may overdraw our account and find good qualities in the highwayman in the hope that he may spare our pockets. I mean everything that I have said. I have the greatest contempt for optimism. As for a spoiled life, no life is spoiled but one whose growth is arrested. If you want to mar a nature, you have merely to reform it. As for marriage, of course, that would be silly, but there are other more interesting bonds between men and women. I will certainly encourage them. They have the charm of being fashionable. But here is Dorian himself. He will tell you more than I can. My dear Harry, my dear Basil, you must both congratulate me, said the lad, throwing off his evening cape with its satin-lined wings, and shaking each of his friends by the hand in turn. I have never been so happy. Of course, it is sudden. All really delightful things are, and yet it seems to me to be the one thing I have been looking for all my life. He was flushed with excitement and pleasure, and looked extraordinarily handsome. I hope you will always be very happy, said Holwood, but I don't quite forgive you for not having let me know of your engagement. You let Harry know. And I don't forgive you for being late for dinner, broke in Lord Henry, putting his hand on the lad's shoulder and smiling as he spoke. Come, let us sit down and try what the new chef here is like, and then you will tell us how it all came about. There's, there's really not much to tell, cried Dorian as they took their seats at the small round table. What happened was simply this. After I left you yesterday evening, Harry, I dressed, had some dinner at that little Italian restaurant in Rupert Street you introduced me to, and went down at eight o'clock to the theatre. Sybil was playing Rosalind. Of course, the scenery was dreadful and the Orlando absurd. But Sybil, you should have seen her. When she came on in her boy's clothes, she was perfectly wonderful. She wore a moss-coloured velvet jerkin with cinnamon sleeves, slim brown cross-gartered hose, a dainty little green cap with a hawk's feather caught in a jewel, and a hooded cloak lined with dull red. She had never seemed to me more exquisite. She had all the delicate grace of that Tanagra figurine that you have in your studio, Basil. Her hair clustered around her face like dark leaves around a pale rose. As for her acting, well, you shall see her tonight. She is simply a born artist. I sat in the dingy box absolutely enthralled. I forgot that I was in London in the nineteenth century. I was away with my love in a forest that no man had ever seen. After the performance was over, I went behind and spoke to her. As we were sitting together, suddenly there came into her eyes a look that I had never seen there before. My lips moved towards hers. We kissed each other. I can't describe to you what I felt at that moment. It seemed to me that all my life had been narrowed to one perfect point of rose-coloured joy. She trembled all over and shook like a white narcissus. Then she flung herself on her knees and kissed my hands. I feel that I should not tell you all this, but I can't help it. Of course, our engagement is a dead secret. She has not even told her own mother. I don't know what my guardians will say. Lord Radley is sure to be furious. I don't care. I shall be of age in less than a year, and then I can do what I like. I have been right, Basil, haven't I, to take my love out of poetry and to find my wife in Shakespeare's plays, lips that Shakespeare taught to speak, 
have whispered their secret in my ear. I have had the arms of Rosalind around me, and kissed Juliet on the mouth. Yes, Dorian, I suppose you were right, said Hallward slowly. Have you seen her today? asked Lord Henry. Dorian Gray shook his head. I left her in the forest of Arden. I shall find her in an orchard in Verona. Lord Henry sipped his champagne in a meditative manner. At what particular point did you mention the word marriage, Dorian? And what did she say in answer? Perhaps you forgot all about it. My dear Harry, I did not treat it as a business transaction, and I did not make any formal proposal. I told her that I loved her, and she said she was not worthy to be my wife. Not worthy. Why, the whole world is nothing to me compared with her. Women are wonderfully practical, murmured Lord Henry, much more practical than we are. In situations of that kind, we often forget to say anything about marriage, and they always remind us. Hallward laid his hand upon his arm. Don't, Harry, you've annoyed Dorian. He's not like other men. He would never bring misery upon anyone. His nature is too fine for that. Lord Henry looked across the table. Dorian is never annoyed with me, he answered. I asked the question for the best reason possible, for the only reason indeed it excuses one for asking any question. Simple curiosity. I have a theory that it is always the women who propose to us, not we who propose to the women, except, of course, in middle-class life. But then, the middle classes are not modern. Dorian Gray laughed and tossed his head. You are quite incorrigible, Harry, but I don't mind. It is impossible to be angry with you. When you see Sybil Vane, you will feel that the man who could wrong her would be a beast, a beast without a heart. I cannot understand how anyone can wish to shame the thing he loves. I love Sybil Vane. I want to place her upon a pedestal of gold and to see the world worship the woman who is mine. What is marriage? An irrevocable vow. You mock at it for that. Ah, don't mock is an irrevocable vow that I want to take. Her trust makes me faithful, her belief makes me good. When I am with her, I regret all that you've told me. I become different from what you've known me to be. I'm changed, and the mere touch of Sybil Vane's hand make me forget you and all your wrong, fascinating, poisonous, delightful theories. And those are? asked Lord Henry, helping himself to some salad. Oh, your theories about life your theories about love, your theories about pleasure, all your theories, in fact, Harry. Pleasure is the only thing worth having a theory about, he answered in his slow, melodious voice. But I am afraid I cannot claim my theory as my own. It belongs to nature, not to me. Pleasure is nature's test, her sign of approval. When we are happy, we are always good. But when we are good, we are not always happy. Ah, but what do you mean by good? cried Basil Hallward. Yes, echoed Dorian, leaning back in his chair and looking at Lord Henry over the heavy clusters of purple-lipped irises that stood in the centre of the table. What do you mean by good, Harry? To be good is to be in harmony with oneself, he replied, touching the thin stem of his glass with his pale, fine-pointed fingers. Discord is to be forced to be in harmony with others. One's own life, that is the important thing. As for the lives of one's neighbours, if one wishes to be a prig or a puritan, one can flaunt one's moral views about them, but they are not one's concern. Besides, individualism has really the higher aim. 
Modern morality consists in accepting the standard of one's age. I consider that for any man of culture to accept the standard of his age is a form of the grossest immorality. But surely, if one lives merely for oneself, Harry, one pays a terrible price for doing so, suggested the painter. Yes, we are overcharged for everything nowadays. I should fancy that the real tragedy of the poor is that they can afford nothing but self-denial. Beautiful sins, like beautiful things, are the privilege of the rich. One has to pay in other ways but money. What sort of ways, Basil? Oh, I should fancy in remorse, in suffering, in, well, in the consciousness of degradation. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. My dear fellow, medieval art is charming, but medieval emotions are out of date. One can use them in fiction, of course, but then the only things that one can use in fiction are the things that one has ceased to use in fact. Believe me, no civilized man ever regrets a pleasure and no uncivilized man ever knows what a pleasure is. I know what pleasure is, cried Dorian Gray. It is to adore someone. That is certainly better than being adored, he answered, toying with some fruits. Being adored is a nuisance. Women treat us just as humanity treats its gods. They worship us, and are always bothering us to do something for them. I should have said that whatever they ask for, they had first given to us, murmured the lad gravely. They create love in our natures. They have a right to demand it back. That is quite true, Dorian, cried Hallward. Nothing is ever quite true, said Lord Henry. This is, interrupted Dorian, you must admit, Harry, that women give to men the very gold of their lives. Possibly, he sighed, but they invariably want it back in such very small change. That is the worry. Women, as some witty Frenchman once put it, inspire us with the desire to do masterpieces and always prevent us from carrying them out. Harry, you're dreadful. I don't know why I like you so much. You will always like me, Dorian, he replied. Will you have some coffee, you fellows? Uh, waiter, bring coffee and fine champagne and uh, some cigarettes. No, don't mind the cigarettes. I have some. Basil, I can't allow you to smoke cigars. You must have a cigarette. A cigarette is the perfect type of a perfect pleasure. It is exquisite, and it leaves one unsatisfied. What more can one want? Yes, Dorian, you will always be fond of me. I represent to you all the sins you have never had the courage to commit. What nonsense you talk, Harry, cried the lad, taking a light from a fire-breathing silver dragon that the waiter had placed on the table. Let us go down to the theatre. When Sybil comes on the stage, you will have a new ideal of life. She will represent something to you that you have never known. I have known everything, said Lord Henry with a tired look in his eyes. But I'm always ready for a new emotion. I'm afraid, however, that for me, at any rate, there is no such thing. Still, your wonderful girl may thrill me. I love acting. It is so much more real than life. Let us go, Dorian. You will come with me. I'm so sorry, Basil, but there's only room for two in the broom. You must follow us in a hansom. They got up and put on their coats, sipping their coffee standing. The painter was silent and preoccupied. There was a gloom over him. He could not bear this marriage. And yet, it seemed to him to be better than many other things that might have happened. After a few minutes, they all passed downstairs. 
he drove off by himself, as had been arranged, and watched the flashing lights of the little broom in front of him. A strange sense of loss came over him. He felt that Dorian Gray would never again be to him all that he had been in the past. Life had come between them. His eyes darkened, and the crowded, flaring streets became blurred to his eyes. When the cab drew up at the theatre, it seemed to him that he had grown years older. Well, everyone, that was the second part of The Portrait of Dorian Gray. I have decided to adopt the persona of Lord Henry Wotton for this evening. I'm not sure how long I can keep it up. I quite enjoy talking like this, but if I were to go about my business on a daily basis, I would get a smack in the teeth, because what happens in England is we are intensely conscious of class differences, which are pervade by our accent. And to speak wrongly in the wrong place is to invite opprobrium. There was a time when I was a young man, I worked in London, and I worked with some rather well-spoken people, and a fellow, Charles was his first name, and uh, he used to talk about, well, in fact, I was thinking this today, and I was, my mice was misbehaving, and he had a mice in the heights. I'm not sure he did, actually, but I used to idly muse that if he had a mice in the heist, what would he say if he had more than one mice? There are three mice in the heist. There's only one mice. And then there's another lady who used to bring her finely bred dogs to work in the lift. And uh, I believe they, well, they did what dogs do in lifts. And um, she used to say he wore a thin grey, pinstripe suit, grey. So her R's had become... Uh, anyway, you think I've gone crazy. It's just, it's, it's a person, it's, it's Dorian Gray, it's taking me over. Um, I'm enjoying it, it's long, but there we are, I'm enjoying it. I mean, you know, there's a lot, the substance of it, you could probably cut out, but would we really want to cut out Lord Harry Watton with these um, remarks, and on his perspicacious remarks on humanity? He doesn't have a lot of good things to say about Americans or women or the lower classes. Um, a gentleman has to be a gentleman for Lord Harry. You, one wonders whether what Oscar Wilde, because Oscar Wilde was Irish, although I think, I don't know what his background was. Uh, he wasn't a, a navvy, was he? Goodness me. Um, so I don't know where he came from, presumably quite wealthy. I should look it up, I should tell you, I should know all these things. But anyway, I'm rambling a tiny bit now. So, yeah, I'm not going to talk a lot because we've got a lot of Dorian Gray to get through. I am I'm into my long things now. I'm thinking, right, a lot of people have suggested I do Algernon Blackwood's The Man Whom the Trees Loved. You, you tend to say, you tend to want to say The Man Who Loved Trees because who doesn't? But uh, this, in particular case, there was a trees loved a man. And um, mm, so that's quite long. And I want to do Frankenstein. Long, long. Uh, so, but the only problem with this is I think people may become bored. This is kind of an hour and a bit, and then it takes me ages to edit it and record it. So it does take a lot of time. And I know that. I'm not saying this is what I do. I like to do it. It's fun. So don't, you know, feel sorry for me. I like doing it, and you like it, and uh, it's all good. It's just the amount of time that one has available. 
but I am inclined to do more long stuff. We'll see how this goes down. The other things have happened. We had a bit of sunshine today. I took Shade the dog out for a long walk. Shade knows four games with sticks. She knows throw stick. That is me throwing it and she brings it back. She knows grab stick, whereby she has the stick in her mouth and I try to grab it. I only managed it once yesterday. She has tug of war as well. That's three, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's another one, but I can't remember. But she knows that she's not stupid, you know. She knows a lot of games. I treated myself to an audience. I'd been using, um, this is for the Technicati. You know, you have glitterati and literati. I, I kind of made up a word. So I was using a Focusrite interface to feed the sound into my computer. And I thought, well, I'd, I'd heard that, um, and thank you for all the coffees you bought me, because I didn't actually spend it all on coffee. If I did, I would be wired. So I bought an Audient audio interface and I bought myself some new headphones. The, the other ones had a long cable, a long cord, and I used to run my chair wheels over them. So it was, it's absolutely ratty, and I used to put yellow tape around them to hold, it, hold the wire together, but they would crackle. So I thought, well, it's about time. They're about two and a half years old. They've been run over many times. So I thought I'd try that, and it's got a shorter cable. Nice, nice pair of headphones. Lovely little interface here, an audience, top quality preamps. You've got to have a good quality preamp because if you don't, you get a lot of hiss if you, if you jack it up. But of course, you don't really want to jack it up because you do, the last thing you do not want is your signal coming in too hot because then it clips. And oh, that is a big problem. So I know all these things now. I didn't used to know them, but I do now. Anyway, Dorian Gray, it's good, isn't it? I'm enjoying it. I hope you are. Hope you're all well. Shade is well. Everybody around here is well. Sheila's well. My daughters are well. Her, Sheila's sons are well. Um, we just bought a hyacinth to sit in my room. Did, did you see I'd done The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot? Because I love that poem. They called me the hyacinth girl. They call me the hyacinth boy. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?